All right, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 10. And uh, our custom here is to work our way through the text of Scripture kind of verse by verse or uh, section by section. And we're beginning a new series this morning called The Good Shepherd. Um, it's, we're, we're continuing through John's gospel, but we've made our way to a different uh, series, a, a different sermon by Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We'll cover verses 1 through 21. A couple of years ago, I was at a high school basketball game in Southern California, and uh, just as soon as the buzzer sounded for the end of the first half, the PA announcer came on and said, I want everyone to remain in your seats. We're going to give away the award for the raffle winner. Now, this was a little surprising to me because I hadn't seen anybody selling raffle tickets, and uh, by the looks on other people's faces, no one else had noticed anybody distributing raffle tickets. But I was intrigued by this. This is normally the time where I kind of get up and walk around and get some popcorn and say hi to some friends and so on. But I wanted to see what happened, so I remained seated as I was instructed. And uh, with uh, very little uh, delay, the PA announcer said uh, over the loudspeaker, he said, uh, Connor LaGrange, please come to center court. Uh, Connor LaGrange was a 14-year-old, roughly from what I could tell, and he was up in the, uh, the upper uh, part of the stadium, and, uh, or the seats, and, and he kind of threw up his hand and said, wait, this has got to be a mistake. I didn't buy a raffle ticket. But people started persuading him, Connor, people started cheering, and they were trying to help him to get to the center of the court. And so finally, uh, with much persuasion, the whole time he's sort of protesting, look, I, I don't know what's happening, but I didn't buy a raffle ticket. This has got to be a mistake. So finally, they moved him to center court where the logo was, I believe the team was, it was the Wolves, so there was a big wolf uh, painted on the center court. Connor's there with another person, and they say, Connor, here is your award for the raffle prize. And out from the bleachers runs a man dressed in military fatigues. It's his father back from Afghanistan. He runs, and Connor leaps in his arms, grabs a hold of his leg, starts crying. He's so overwhelmed with joy. The place erupts in applause. People are clapping and cheering. It was a very beautiful scene. There's something about those kind of reunion stories that really uh, get us every time. We love reunion stories. We love hearing about them and even experiencing them. We love to hear about people coming home. And we love to come home ourselves. This is why so many songs of, by different artists are written just from every sort of genre about Coming home. Uh, Leonard Skinner has a song, Coming Home. Anybody heard that one? No one's heard of Leonard Skinner in North Alabama. <laughs> I know, okay, a few of you have. Uh, all different types of artists, from, uh, from Leonard Skinner to Michael Buble, who has a song about coming home, to Ozzy Osbourne, to P. Diddy. All these artists have written songs specifically about coming home. We love those types of stories. A homecoming is of great importance. In fact, the story of the Bible is really a homecoming story, isn't it? You go back to the creation, our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they're banished from God's presence. They're exiled from the garden because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience, banished again from God's glorious face. And yet a seed of the woman was promised who would not only crush the head of Satan, but restore everything that was lost. He would actually bring his people home reconcile them to the God who made them, restore shalom, this total wholeness and well-being. 
on a new heaven and a new earth, a new home. Well, the passage that we're in this morning shows us how Jesus leads his people home amid a number of voices, other voices presenting a different way home. This morning, we're going to see three aspects of Jesus' ministry that haven't really been, he's not really elaborated on too much uh, thus far. And here they are. As the true shepherd, Jesus knows his sheep. He gives life to his sheep. And he lays down his own life for his sheep. John chapter 10. Let me start by reading the first 10 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, most of us probably don't see a lot of sheep. I know we have a few people in our church, a couple of people that I know of who, who do some farming, and so maybe they have, but I think uh, generally speaking, we're not terribly familiar with sheep. We're not around them that much. Um, but if you go to the Middle East, you will see uh, this is a regular fixture, and the Im- imagery of sheep and shepherds was a huge part of Israel's heritage. Now, even if you've never seen a sheep, you've never seen a lamb, which, by the way, are the most frequently referenced animals in the Bible. Um, If you've never seen a sheep, you do know at least this. You know that sheep are not ferocious, right? In fact, it's probably fair to say they are the least ferocious animals on the planet. Sheep are gentle. Sheep are vulnerable. Sheep are welcoming. What do you do when you have a child who can't sleep? Now, this is probably a while ago. Now we just say, turn off your phone, please. Get rid of your device. Um, But there was a time when parents would say to their children, I want you to count sheep. And because of this, this sort of gentle nature of the sheep would actually lull them to sleep. Uh, Sheep are gentle. Sheep are helpless. Sheep are vulnerable. They have no real defense mechanism. You know, most of the animals in the animal kingdom have a defense mechanism, something they do to ward off would-be predators. You know, the skunk has the the, the putrid spray, and and the possum uh, plays dead, and the eagle has his talons, and we could go on. And there are some other other strange defense mechanisms uh, mechanisms that animals have. I was just looking at this. I I googled uh, bizarre defense mechanisms, and... The Texas horned lizard, for example, actually shoots blood out of its eyes to ward off predators. Uh, the Spanish ribbed newt um, actually has its, it sticks its ribs out through its skin, and its ribs then become the sort of uh, 
the, the defense mechanism. Um, uh, there are those that sort of, there are fish that blow up and, and all kinds of different animals. But think about a sheep. What defense mechanism does a sheep have? They have none. There's nothing that a sheep, there's nothing a lamb can do to protect itself from a predator. Sheep are, are helpless. Sheep uh, need to be protected. And this is why uh, they had shepherds to guide them and to watch over them. So during the day, shepherds would lead their sheep out into the pasture. They would take them into a nice green area under the sun so that the sheep could find nourishment. And then at night, the shepherd would lead the sheep into the sheepfold or the sheep pen. Now, now don't think circus tent. Um, don't, don't think a big barn. Think of a high-walled courtyard with, with stone walls surrounding the courtyard and a very narrow entryway that the sheep and, and perhaps a person or two could go into the sheepfold. Um, but there were walls of stone surrounding it. And most families would own between three and ten sheep, depending on the, the level of wealth. And they would hire a, a watchman or an under-shepherd to protect or to look over, look after their sheep during the night. Because what thieves and robbers would try to do is they would try to get into the sheep pen by either climbing over the high walls or breaking through if there was a weak area. Because even though sheep were defenseless, they were valuable creatures. Uh, they were prized for their wool. Uh, they provided milk for cheese. When we think about cheese, we think uh, of course, coming from a cow's milk, but historically speaking, you go all the way back to the ancient Greeks, you go back to uh, those uh, many cultures that actually preferred sheep that was made from, or milk that was made from uh, sheep's milk or goat's milk. And so sheep were valuable for those reasons. They were valuable for their skins, uh, which were used to make sort of uh, canteens uh, in which to carry water. So they were, they were vulnerable. They were helpless, but they were also valuable. And so they, were, they needed a shepherd to protect them. And one of the things that we know about sheep, looking back historically, is that they were a very loyal creature, except when they were deceived. Uh, they were surprisingly loyal to their shepherd's voice. You go back to the latter part of the second century. Um, the Greek philosopher Claudius uh, Aelianus wrote a book called De Natura Animalium, which is Latin for on the nature of animals. Uh, and in it, again, this is like the one, 170s, um, he notes that of all the animals, sheep were the easiest to lead because they followed the voice of the shepherd. Even if the shepherd led them over a cliff, they would follow the shepherd in that direction. Um, when he said go, they went, which is, so, which is why it was so important that sheep had good shepherds. And Jesus says that his sheep follow him because they know his voice and he knows them. Here's our first point this morning. True sheep are known by Jesus and therefore follow him amid all the other competing voices. True sheep are known by Jesus and therefore follow him amid all the other competing voices. Uh, one of my favorite authors is a lady by the name of Elise Fitzpatrick and uh, uh, just has a beautiful way with words. In fact, Janine and I were at a conference just Thursday through Saturday in San Diego and we had a chance to talk to Elise and, and spend a little bit of time with her. And, um, she's in one of her books called Because He Loves Me. She's written a chapter on uh, what she says is the, the biggest problem that Christians face, and that is identity amnesia, she calls it. 
Uh, they, they forget who they are. We forget who we truly are in Christ. It's an issue of identity. When we talk about identity, we're talking about what is it that makes you, you at the core. In other words, how would you define yourself? If someone says, who are you? What might be the first thing that you say in response? What is it that makes you, you? What is it that gives you significance and worth and value? Uh, the answer to those questions is determined largely by what cultural script we're reading. It's what sociologists refer to as the way that we sort of see ourselves and the world. It's the narrative or message that helps us to make sense of things. We are bombarded with scripts. Religion offers scripts. Uh, our parents offer scripts. Hollywood offers scripts. What would you imagine is the most prevalent, the most influential script of all? It is social media. Social media tells us uh, what we're supposed to think about ourselves. It gives us a way to sort of present ourselves to others, showing all of the good, of course, and, and rarely any of the bad. Um, but we, we, we learn, we, we identify ourselves according to those cultural scripts. And, and one of the most common, common scripts, and scripts are important because not only do they help us understand who we are and, and this world that we live in, but they also at times try to answer the question, who's in and who's out? Who's in with God? Who's out with God? And one of the most common scripts goes like this. I am what I do. I would say, I don't even know if it's really more for men than women. It's, it's really a very common way to look at ourselves. Um, our culture says that identity is a consequence of actions. In other words, if my actions are successful, if I'm successful at my job, at my parenting, at... at my relationships, then I am a success. But if my actions are unsuccessful, then I am a failure. What I am is determined by what I do according to this way. If, I, if I, my, contribu my contributions are valuable to the church, to society, to my work, whatever it is, then I am of value. But if not, then I am worthless. If I can do enough good, then I will be a good person in God's eyes. In fact, this was the very cultural script that Jesus was confronting in this sermon, the Good Shepherd sermon. When Jesus says in verse 1 that there are those who tried to climb into the sheepfold another way, thieves and robbers, he calls them, who's he talking about? Well, John 10, what we call John 10, is of course naturally informed by John chapters 6 through 9. And what do we see in John chapters 6 through 9? Jesus is regularly confronting and confronted by the religious leaders. They accost him. They challenge him after his sermons. They are angry at him. They accuse him. We'll see in just a moment. Again, they accuse him of someone being possessed by a demon. So Jesus is regularly in this battle with the religious authorities. The whole context of John 10 represents a clash of systems. One system, that is the view of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, held that there was a God, and they were God's shepherds. And so it was their responsibility to determine who was in and who was out, who was approved by God and who was condemned by God, based on obedience to their standards. Jesus repeatedly violates their system. He flaunts their religious rules by healing on the Sabbath. And we've noticed in John's Gospel that it seems like most of the healings we read about are done on the Sabbath. Jesus is flaunting their religious system. 
And because of that, they had actually placed Jesus in the out category, the unjust category, as they also did, we saw a few weeks ago with the blind man. Now, many people know that the shortest verse in the Bible, in fact, if you do any Bible trivia, then this is certainly will roll right off your tongue. It's from John 11, Jesus wept, right? Two words. But fewer people realize what it was that made Jesus cry. What was it that grieved Jesus? What was it that moved Jesus? Well, Matthew tells us in his gospel that one of the things that moves Jesus deeply and grieves him horribly is seeing sheep misled by bad shepherds, spying helpless folks who are harassed by controlling leaders who pile upon them extra biblical standards, religious rituals. That actually grieves Jesus. The thieves and robbers in this passage are the religious leaders who attempt to mislead the people of God by presenting another way to God, another way home, as it were, other than by believing in the one God sent, Jesus. And what is that other way? It is acceptance from God by religious ritual. It is approval from God by obedience to a certain set, set of standards. External conformity. To them, obedience to their standards was ultimate. And this, by the way, is how, quote, thieves and robbers, robbers bad shepherds have always operated. They attempt to lead God's sheep astray with what seems to be a very good message. And that is, live better. You can do this. Try harder. Make more of an effort. If you'll just do a little bit more, God will be pleased with you. But they miss the main message. Christ has not just been better. Christ has been perfect for us. One theologian comments on the passage this way. He says, the person climbing in another way is the person gripped by and so enforcing other important and even biblical themes, but missing the sole essential theme of both Scripture and life, God's Messiah for needy people. Now, they are thieves and robbers. Why? Because they rob Christ of His glory by attempting to add to what He's done, thereby discrediting the work, minimizing the work of Jesus, saying if you really want to be right with God, you've got to believe in Jesus, but you've got to do all these other things. Minimizing the beauty and power of the gospel. They steal, that's why they're called thieves. They steal by obscuring from needy people the very thing that would save them. Believing in Jesus the Christ. But they will not, in fact, they cannot mislead God's chosen ones because Jesus knows them and they know him. He doesn't just know those who are his he offers them real life. Look at verses 7 through 10 again. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the, thie the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. One of the great fears that, and I was so encouraged, by the way, by Pastor Brent last week, really encouraging us from what's been done to be those who are envoys, messengers of Christ. But 
if you've ever shared the gospel with anyone, you, you know that one of the great fears of those who, who will listen is that they're going to lose their life. Not, not physically, but figuratively. They're going to lose out on everything that's fun, everything that's meaningful, everything that, that delights them. And so they, they resist the Christian faith. And there are a lot of different types of objections to the Christian faith. Some are intellectual. You know, how can we know that a God exists? Or, or how can we believe this old book? Some are, so you have intellectual, some are emotional. Uh, sometimes people say, well, how can I believe in a God who would send people to hell? How can I believe in a God who is presented the way the Old Testament presents him? For some, they reject the message of Christ because of family or cultural pressure. How many people have you heard say, um, and I was sharing the gospel with a guy just two weeks ago who said, yeah, um, but the thing is, my wife's always been a Roman Catholic, and there's no way she's ever going to a different church. She's not, so there are family, uh, cultural pressures. That's what, but of all the objections to the Christian faith, you know, it's not, it's not the intellectual objection. It's not the emotional objection. It's not even the family objection that is most prevalent. It is the volitional objection. In other words, I don't want to follow Jesus because if I do... I'm going to have to surrender everything that's fun. The single greatest deterrent to people turning to God in repentant faith is volitional objection. They're afraid that doing so would ruin everything they have going for them. It's going to make my life miserable, they think. After all, they, they have everything they need in their estimation. But deep down, now you, you can't always get there with people, especially in the first conversation. But deep down... There is a sense of emptiness. There is a sense of dissatisfaction, a longing to be known by God, a yearning to be accepted by God. A few years ago, in 2005, the well-known uh, atheist David Foster Wallace referred to, he was referred to in the LA Times as uh, one of the most influential and innovative writers of the last 20 years. So. A lot of people are putting out new books, new material, so this is a, this is a big uh, commendation. He gave a graduation speech, this atheist did, at a university in which he said that everybody worships something. He stunned the audience when he said this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. No such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships the only choice we get is what we worship. Now, of course, this was not you know, well-received in the atheist community. It was, uh, he frustrated a lot of people when he said that. But he said, we are worshiping beings. And again, this is coming from an atheist. Of course, you know, again, this was problematic for, for those in his camp. But what he was saying, even if he didn't fully realize it was, we all end up latching on to something for meaning, for significance, for worth. We all do. We all want to be known by someone greater than ourselves. We all, even if we would deny it with great passion and fervor, we all want to be known by the one who made us. And there are thieves and robbers who offer a way to know God, a way to know God in our own strength, in our own ability. But Jesus says that He is the door. He is the only way to salvation. And what he really offers is a full life, an abundant life. Here's our second point. What Jesus provides is the best sort of life. 
because it is a life free from guilt and shame, a life lived in fellowship with God. This is the abundant life. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be the easy life. In fact, life with Christ may be a harder life. It may be a more challenging life. It may be a life that's characterized by persecution or rejection. So he's not saying that my life is the easy life. What he's saying is that it is the abundant life. It is the full life because it is a life lived in fellowship with God. What we need more than anything is the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, to be made right with God. And this is actually God's gift to us by faith in Christ alone. We can't do enough. We can't serve enough. We can't give enough. We can't pledge enough. You can't bring enough cans of yams. Whatever it is, you can't do enough so that God would forgive you. We are only made right by believing in what God in Christ has done. He is the door. And for those who are outside of Christ, even though they may not even know how to articulate it, there's still there's this yearning, this longing to show I'm worth something, I'm valuable. I get a call six or seven years ago from a guy I hadn't talked to in 15 years. And I really had no idea how he even got my number, frankly. Uh, we lived together, uh, we lived next door to each other in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan in the late 90s and developed a, a good friendship. And during that time, this friend of mine got himself into all kinds of trouble. He got into gambling, became addicted to gambling, started stealing from his boss, from other people, ended up uh, being convicted. His wife left him. Uh, his kids uh, abandoned him. They were estranged from him. His life was a complete wreck. Fifteen years later, I got a call from this guy I had not talked to in a decade and a half. Again, I had no idea why he was calling me, what, what the point was. And it's kind of one of those things, it's hard when someone calls you out of the blue to actually get at, you know, you can kind of, you know, you can say, hey, what's up? Or what? It's kind of hard to get at, like, what, what, why are you calling me? And I don't mean that in a mean way, but like, what's prompted this? And I listened to him talk for five or six minutes, and he's explaining to me how he's turned his life around, and how he now has a steady job, and he's, he has a, another wife, and he's been reconciled to his kids, and all these things. And what I realized was, as we're having this conversation, that for somebody who has not talked to him in 15 years, he wanted to let me know that he's worth something. He would have let me know, hey, look, I've got things figured out. I've got things turned around. I want you to know I'm valuable now. I'm worth something. We have this, this longing to prove ourselves, a longing to justify ourselves. This is what so much of social media is about. And I'm not against social media. I'm on social media. So much of it is self-justification. I want to show you, look how I am as a mom. Look how I am as a, as, as a neighbor. Look how I am as a participant in my community, whatever it is. This need to, to justify ourselves. And yet Christ says, no, the only way to have the full life is to abandon those self-justifying efforts and actually come in through the door. Come in by way of faith in Christ. Again, because what matters most, really the only thing that matters in the end, is that we are known by God. Look at verses 11 uh, through 21. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and he is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Apparently, it's true even today. Uh, if you go to the Middle East, a shepherd will go into a crowded sheepfold. And even if his own sheep are sort of mingle in among the sheep of others, when he calls for them, they will come out and they will follow him. Again, I've been to the Middle East and I've seen shepherds and sheep. And, and this is an interesting phenomenon that, that even if sheep are, are, are mixed in with others, when the shepherd calls, they will, they will come out. And, he, and Jesus de- says, what he says, it goes beyond normal practices. He's not, they're not simply recognizing his voice. He is calling them by name. Michael, follow me. Elizabeth, follow me. James, follow me. Put your own name in there. Follow me. Jesus calls us by name. If you put your faith in Christ, you are known by Jesus completely, through and through. And you are loved by Him. He doesn't just call out generically. He calls and He cares for His people specifically by name. In the Old Testament, God promises uh, that in in response to the bad shepherds who looked after their own interests but ignored their sheep, that He would send one day He would send a good shepherd, that he, in fact, would shepherd his own sheep. God rebukes these bad shepherds in Ezekiel 34, which really provides the foundation for John 10, where God says, it reads this way, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. God promises to shepherd his sheep and now God has arrived in the person of Jesus. He is the good shepherd. Unlike the sheep, the shepherds of old who looked after their own uh, uh, interests, who, who led and ruled the sheep harshly, imposing on them impossible burdens, one after another. Jesus is the good shepherd. He takes care of his own. He leads with tenderness and compassion. And unlike the hired hand, which is probably a reference back to the, again, the shepherds of ancient Israel, unlike the hired hand who disappears when trouble comes, Jesus remains. And he speaks to us as our creator. He says, I know you. 
I know you by name. Even before you were born, I knew you. On your first day of school, when you went to kindergarten, I was there, I knew you. And when you had your first heartbreak, I was there and I knew you. When you went through that terrible tragedy, that horrible ordeal, I was there and I knew you. I knew you then and I know you now. I know what people have said about you. I know what people have done to you. I know what you love. I know what you're afraid of. Even when you don't know what to think about yourself, I know you. You belong to me. We were, Janine and I were at this conference for the last few days, and it was in San Diego. We're walking. We had a, a, an hour and a half break for dinner, so and it was dark. We were outside. We're walking along this pier, and we looked up, and the sunset was just beautiful, and all kinds of colors and hues and, and dimensions, and, and we just stopped for a minute and admired the sunset, and then Janine said, you know, this is beautiful, but I think the sunsets in Hunset or, uh, Huntsville are actually more beautiful, more rich. For whatever reason, they're just incredible, and we pulled up a couple of pictures that people have posted on Facebook of the sunsets that night, and and we look at that, and we look at all the colors and the hues and the majesty and all this glorious splendor of that, and we say, wow, that's amazing. And we say, like, I know the one who made that. I know the one who drew that. But what's better still is he knows me. The one who put the stars in place, the one who painted the beautiful sunset, he actually knows me. And he knows me by name. There are 7.67 billion people in the world, and yet he knows me, and he knows me completely. Of course, we're not the only ones. Jesus' saving knowledge includes those who are part of every nation, every tribe, every tongue. In verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. This is a reference to those outside of the Jewish world, outside of the Jewish community, which have been would have been scandalous to the initial audience. The Messiah intends to reach beyond Israel. In fact, we know now, at this stage in redemptive history, has re reached beyond to the whole world. Jesus knows people who don't even yet know him, but they will. Jesus says, I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock, one shepherd. It takes us all the way back to John 3.16, Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. Jesus has people throughout the world that he intends to reach to gather together and to lead home. This is why Jesus came, to gather and redeem a group of people by living and dying for them. Now, look at verse 17 here very quickly again. Uh, Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now, I, say, I want to point that out because we should not conclude from that that Jesus needed to die on the cross in order for God to love him. That's not the case. There was, a, there was a controversy that arose in Scotland in the early 1700s. In fact, it started really right at 1700, called the Marrow Controversy. And, um, and really, I think, and in ways maybe sort of unbeknownst to many preachers, this has impacted and effective, affected a lot of preachers. And, and of course, there's a, there's a big controversy, and I won't try to spell it all out. But one of the things that was sort of intimated or, or insinuated in that was that God's love, even for His Son was in part conditional. That God loves Jesus because He died. Well, that's not 
the intent of Jesus' word here. That's not a biblical inference. God loves Jesus with an eternal and unchanging love that doesn't vary according to what Jesus did or has done. Jesus is not saying, this is the reason that God loves me. What he's doing is emphasizing how much God so loved the world. In fact, I love what one theologian says in his explanation. The father so loves his son and so loves the world, his world, that out of this deep double love, the father is thrilled that his son is willing to lay down his life for his world. Without this substitutional and atoning obedience, there is no salvation. For this great and good God is righteous and holy. We are broken and sinful people. Our affections are all over the place. We have violated God's law in word, deed, action, thought, motive, in all those ways. And yet Christ, in His mercy, He surrenders His own life willingly for the ones He loves. Here's our final point this morning. The greatest cost was willingly incurred by Jesus but he paid it so that we could have the infinite prize. Jesus didn't have to surrender his life. You know that, right? He didn't have to give up his life. He did so willingly. He did so voluntarily. No one takes it from me, he says. Now, I want you to think back for just a moment at the start of this about the lamb that we mentioned at the beginning. The lamb is helpless. The lamb is vulnerable. The lamb is weak. The lamb is defenseless. The lamb is gentle. This is what God the Son became, figuratively speaking. A helpless lamb. The creator of the universe refused to cling to his divine rights as God and instead took on humanity in which he would become the most incredible kind of vulnerable. Again, you look at all the animals on the earth that have these defense mechanisms. Sheep have no such way. God the Son became fully human while still being fully God and so vulnerable that he wouldn't even defend himself against the vicious attacks and the violent beatings put on him by Those he came to save. The one who was there from the beginning, the word subjected himself to the cruel punishment for our rebellion. Isaiah foretells he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And listen to this, like a lamb is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is before its shears silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why? So that you and I could be forgiven so that you and I could be made right with God. For all the sins you hate, but you keep committing. For all the sins that you love, but you keep in secret. For all the sins that seem so innocuous, they seem so harmless, but they are an affront to the character of God. And for all the sins that seem too big to be forgiven. His death secured our pardon. He, his death gave way to life for us, a life by faith. But he didn't stay dead. He didn't just remain a lamb. He came forth from the grave as a conquering lion. 
He was raised from the dead on the third day for our justification. And sometimes we talk about justification and we try to simplify it and we say what it means is it's just as if I never sinned. And that's good and that's right and that's very helpful. But it's so much more than that. Because we have been justified by faith in Christ, when God looks at us, He looks at us just as if we'd always obeyed. We'd always obeyed. The perfect righteous record actually credited to us by faith. Christ was raised from the dead, resurrected as the victorious lion, the great shepherd of the sheep. And as the good shepherd, he will do what all those shepherds before failed to do. He will guide his own home. He will protect his own. He will keep his own. Even when their faith is weak, even when their affections wane, even as they are prone to wander, he, the good shepherd, will hold them fast. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Comfort us this morning with these words. Minister to us by your Spirit. Help us to recognize by the power of your Spirit that it is Christ who will hold us fast. He is our hope. It's not in our ups and downs. It's not in our early morning devos. It's not even in our prayer life. Christ is our hope. He is our righteousness. He is the good shepherd. He will do what all the other shepherds have failed to do. He will keep his own. He will lead us home. He will hold us fast. Give us the grace to believe it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.